0: Okay, we're continuing our discussion of the story of Ruth that is unfolding in the book that bears her name, the book of Ruth, and it's in the historical section of the Old Testament, not right at the beginning, but closer to the beginning, and it's not a romance. It's a story about actual love that's actually love, and romances aren't really always about that. It's, it's a story about love and honor and commitment that will help you to have a successful marriage. And so from that standpoint, it says a lot about the criteria you use to select who you want to marry. And I'm going to say what you want to marry. Okay? And it also speaks to you about the kind of person that you seek to be and try to present yourself as in an effort to attract someone to be your mate okay so that's what we're talking about and we are up to chapter two in Ruth chapter two we're at a point where Ruth has been loyal to her mother-in-law Naomi though the the son husband that died there that was the bond between Ruth and Naomi that he's he's gone She's still showing family love and family loyalty, and this did not escape Boaz's notice. Ruth 2, verse 11 and 12, Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have become... I have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. In Ruth's display of loyalty and love to Naomi In that activity, in that mindset, she is running to God's side for refuge. She is coming underneath the shadow of his wing. That's the kind of the poetic language or idea that's employed here. And so her seeking God's help, her seeking God for refuge, amounted to the choices that she made and the way she treated people. So when you're pursuing a mate, and the older you get, the more earnest this pursuit will be, you'll reach a point in life that it will become very important to you in, in all probability. You'll want God's help. I'm going to guess you'll pray for God's help. Some of you probably already are praying regularly for God's help. I hear sometimes a young lady will comment, you know, shortly after her wedding that this is the husband that I've prayed for since I was X years old. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of you weren't praying, guys or girls, for a spouse someday. I hope you are. If you really want God's help, then you act like Ruth. Because seeking God's help includes the idea of praying to God and humbling yourself before God and asking for that. But seeking God's help also involves acting the way God would have us to act. And in this instance, she acted with love and loyalty, like we talked about yesterday, towards her mother-in-law. And that was part of her coming to God for refuge, seeking his aid. (coughs) And you know what Boaz said about it? Apparently, everybody was talking about it. Ruth had a reputation. And it wasn't, girls, the kind of reputation such that all the worldly boys wanted to be sure they got to date her at least once, okay? Because of the lewd or illicit way that she, you know, would act on that first date. That wasn't her reputation. Her reputation was one of loyalty and love and honor, In Proverbs 27 and verse 10, he said, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, (coughs) nor go to your brother's house on the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. This passage encourages us to accept and practice the value of loyalty. I believe there's an inference here in long-standing friendships. It's not just your friend, but your father's friend. There are some friendships that span generations. My kids are friends with certain people in the church. They're grown now, but as young wives and young mothers, they have friends that were based on the fact that their friend's parents and I have been friends or my wife have been friends for years. And now our respective grandkids are becoming friends. <coughs> I Understand, we're talking about quality friendships that are centered around God. But in those long-standing friendships that span generations, there is a specialness that words can't measure, at least my words can't. So I'm not talking about just a pointless loyalty to somebody just because they've been on your calendar for so many years. But I'm talking about a loyalty relationship that's built around a loyalty to God. You're loyal to this individual because they're loyal to God. And you're loyal to that individual because you're loyal to God. Okay. And that kind of loyalty is priceless and it's frankly hard to find. You don't have to go out in the world and work at a job or conduct business very long at all to find out. There's some people that loyalty means absolutely nothing to them. And they will very cheaply on a whim break a long-standing relationship and they don't think anything about it. And that might seem moderately annoying until that disloyalty shows up in the home. You want to see real tears, you go where disloyalty has broken up a home and has torn up friendships and long-standing relationships. And all of a sudden, people that were once friends and their friendships had spanned generations. All of a sudden, that's all very complicated because people started acting disloyal. Boaz is noticing in Ruth that she's not that way, but she's standing true in love to these long-standing relationships. In response to all this, Ruth acknowledged Boaz's kindness Ruth 2 and verse 13, she said, now think of this as a response to Boaz commending her for her reputation. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She didn't see in herself someone that was worthy of all this favor and attention that Boaz was showing her, and in this we see humility and we see gratitude. Ingratitude is a real problem spiritually. A failure to be thankful, that's a real problem. And see as Ruth approaches Boaz in this uh, verbal interaction that they're having, She's not acting like the queen bee that is worthy of all this that he's heaping upon her saying, boy, you've got a good reputation and all that he's saying about her. She doesn't act entitled to it. Instead, she acts grateful for it and speaks in a way it sounds to me like she's talking like she's kind of not worthy of it. There's a humility there. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 2 talks about a lot of different moral ills that befall mankind or things in which man, men indulge. <clears throat> he said men will be lovers of their own self, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Being unthankful is linked with a lot of other very terrible sins, and there are others that are spoken of in the verse that follows here but the ones that are mentioned there in verse 2 are enough to give us the idea. God sees a lack of gratitude as a very serious problem because Jesus teaches us our words speak the content of our heart. The mouth speaks the abundance of the heart. Well, that's also true of what the mouth doesn't say, and if the mouth doesn't speak thankfulness, then there's not thankfulness in the heart. Well, if your heart's not thankful for everything you're getting, then what does your heart think? Your heart believes you deserve it? Your heart believes you're entitled to it? I want to tell you, you don't want to be married to somebody that feels entitled. You do not want that. This passage mentions those that are lovers of themselves, those that are lovers of money, somebody that is a boaster. All of those are concepts that describe a person that's self-absorbed. You'll hear people a little bit older than you refer to that as narcissism that just means selfishness it kind of oversimplified just extreme selfishness and i'll tell you where narcissism or that level of selfishness runs them up. that sense of entitlement that sense of i deserve to be treated you know this way or that that kind of heart is a kind of heart that's difficult to stay latched to and that's not a heart that practices loyalty and love towards others That's a heart that focuses on loyalty to self. And our loyalty to be rooted in God, isn't it? So Ruth shows her acknowledgement of Boaz's kindness with this expression of thanks. So we can see the thankfulness that lives in her heart because of what her mouth speaks. And what does Jesus teach us about saying thank you? Let's look at the story in Luke 17, verse 12 through 18. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? There's a lot of of rich truth in this passage. It's really important for our present purposes. Number one, Christ equated saying thank you with giving glory to God. Having a thankful heart glorifies God. Expressing that heart with words glorifies God's. Expressing that heart with our actions glorifies God. So when Ruth showed that towards Boaz, she was glorifying God. It might look like he was a focal point of her attention in that moment, but in glorifying God, see how she was running under the shadow of God's wing in having that kind of conduct, in a way we might say that was her prayer for God's help in finding a godly mate. To sort of parallel it with the idea of, of prayer we were talking about a moment ago. Now let's notice something else. Leprosy was a deadly disease. I, I would assume that most of you are aware of that, but in case you're not, le- leprosy starts out a lot of times... Uh, just sort of spots showing up on the skin and on the fingers and it basically decays and decays and works its way inward until it finally gets to the vital organs and what happens when a person has leprosy is the skin and and the part of the that part of the body just slowly slops off it's very nasty looking and uh, you see them eventually their fingers will be shortened down to one knuckle and it'll go further And before long they just have a a remnant of the hands that they once had, and it just keeps working its way, and it'll cover the torso until finally it's on the vital organs, and, and they start losing their their health and vitality, and eventually the person dies. These people had a deadly disease. It was just a matter of time before not only did they die, but they died with great agony and great disgrace because lepers were you know segregated from the rest of society. It was a horrible way to die. And these ten people that had leprosy, Jesus singled them out of all the sick that he could have healed on that day, and he healed them. But only one bothered the simple deed of thank you. And what did Jesus say? Where are the nine? Where's everybody else? The different times I've talked about this particular passage with younger people, I've issued this challenge, I think I issued this here several years ago when we did this series. You, you hold each other accountable to say thank you. And girls, if you see the guys receive something, you know, food at the, the meals or in, in your interactions and somebody does something and, and one of them doesn't turn and say thank you, feel free to say, where are the nine? Just as a reminder. And, and guys do that to the ladies, or ladies do that with each other, or guys, y'all hold each other accountable to say thank you. It might take time to build that habit if you don't already have that habit, I hope you do, but if you don't, it might take time to get used to that, thank your friends when they hold you accountable, and build that habit of trying as often as you can think of it to say thank you when someone does something nice for you. And understand that doing that from a sincere heart, that glorifies God. That's what Ruth is doing. Now, where's Orpah? Well, she's gone, and I'm not trying to knock her, but there's a contrast I want to draw. We really don't know what happened to her as far as I'm aware. There's nothing in the narrative that says what happened, but we know what happened to Ruth. She's in the process of catching a Boaz, and that is a high-quality husband. Because of her conduct, she's putting herself in a position to receive God's blessings here. Can you see that? And that part of that is this thankful attitude. Now Boaz steps up to the plate and he provides for Ruth in all of this difficulty of harvesting work. One of the things that was happening here was Boaz was doing what he could to try to make Ruth's job comparatively easy in uh, Ruth two and fourteen Boaz said to her at mealtime, "Come here and eat of the bread and dip." your piece of bread and the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. He's making sure that she has an adequate meal and when you're working in harvest like she is and you're burning up uh, your body's fuel, being able to replenish that with, with a good meal, that really means a lot. That lets you fulfill your day in strength rather than slowly descending into greater weakness. That's a really, really big deal. It's, it's kind of tough to skip a meal anyway, but you skip a meal when you're having to work out in the physical labors in the heat of the sun, that's, that's very, very difficult. But Boaz is showing he's got a heart that he takes responsibility for those in his care. And girls, you want a guy that takes responsibility for your care. If he's not going to do that now, Don't expect the words I do to suddenly wake up his manly honor. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, there are those that push a college education. There are those that don't. And and I'm not... I don't have an agenda to push any particular kind of education. I know there's all these people out there that's finishing school with a a degree in twelfth century Lithuanian dance <laughs> and they owe a hundred thousand dollars. And I know there's people that think I'm responsible to pay that debt and we're we're not even gonna worry about that. I know that's I'm not trying to say to just go to school just to go to school. I wanna tell you fellas, get a trade. Be a man. For the love of God's honor in which he would have you live, be a man and get a trade that you can use to feed your family. Because here the Lord teaches that if you won't do that, that is equivalent to being a teetotal unbeliever. And I, it grieves me. I see a lot of men that, that, I'll use that word men loosely, that have no concept of this kind of honor. And when you study the context in 1 Timothy 5, It's not just talking about taking care of your lady. It's not just talking about taking care of your children. It's talking about situating yourself to be able to take care of mama if you need to, or take care of her mama. And when you study the context, you might get the idea there's even more extended family had in view there. And you know what? Someday life may look at you and ask for your man card. Can you handle it? Are you boys doing things now in the habits you build, whether those are academic pursuits and studying and all like that, or whether that's some other way that you go about learning a trade, whatever it is that you're doing to exercise this work ethic that we've talked about, are you building those kind of habits that will make you the kind of man that will fulfill your God-assigned role to be that caregiver like what Boaz was? But when life asks for your man card, will you have to hang your head in shame as you give it up? Hey, some guys turn to vapor in the breeze when this hour comes. What will you do? God is watching. I'll tell you the time to prepare for that is not when you're 30. If you wait till you're 30 to start working on this, you're getting a late start, and it's going to be rough. Now, if you're 29 and you hadn't done it yet, then by all means, start it before you turn 30. But if you wait till then, and you're not 30 yet, so there's no excuse for waiting, you've been warned. Get ready. Taking care of a family is expensive. It takes a lot of effort. Looking back, I remember in making preparations to to get married I kept thinking about all these things I needed to do and I'll tell you there were a lot of ways I was talking to a couple of the brethren yesterday about being old enough to get married there were a lot of things about it I did not understand this is one of those decisions that made me say later is I thought you know what I better buy some health insurance because if she gets sick I know we're young and she shouldn't get sick the chances are we'll be just fine, so I'm just spending money to an insurance company, but I better get health insurance. And it cost me a lot. I had to sacrifice to make it happen, but I bought my life health insurance. And six months later, the doctor's saying, son, we're going to have to put her in a hospital. You know what? Of all the things I couldn't do, and I tell you, there's a lot I couldn't do. One thing I could do is I could look her dad in the eye and say, I've got this taken care of. And in that moment, I thought about the shame and the disgrace that, well, what if I can't? Well, thankfully, I didn't have to endure that. For all the other mistakes that have made me feel that shame, I'm trying to plant in your head, fellas, a sense of honor where you're taking care of those that are under your care and under your responsibility. In caring for Ruth, in providing for her, he worked to make the situation easier for her. Ruth 2 verse 15-16 through 16 says when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain uh, from the bundles fall purposefully for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. He's instructing to basically let her harvest among what's already been harvested. It's compared to the people that were cutting the stalk at the ground. I mean, she's got it very, very easy here. And it's not because she's afraid of work. It's not because she demands it. It's because he's a gentleman. It's because he cares about her. Do you think he's trying to lure her in? Do you think he's trying to show himself to be the kind of guy that would be a worthy selection? I mean, because of the whole family relationship here, he is a legal, viable candidate to be her husband. You think he's showing himself to be willing to fulfill that obligation? That's the way it looks to me, and in the gentlemanly way that he treated her. And so what was Ruth able to do? Ruth 2.17, She gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. That's a lot of grain. And even though her job was made a little bit easier to just take those stalks of grain and beat that out and, and yield the kernels from the stalk, just that much alone was a lot of physical and unpleasant effort. I mean, it's, it's, there's dust coming off of that. It's going to make you sneeze your head off. But she's not an nail buffer is she, girls? Remember, we talked about that yesterday. It's hard to make yourself stay pretty doing this kind of work. And yet, what the godly male eye sees here, boys, is a beautiful woman. It doesn't matter how much dust is caked to the sweat on the side of her face. She's beautiful because of who she is and what she's doing. We observe These sheaves were bundles of stalks with the heads of grain. Ruth gleaned an ephah of grain. That's over five gallons. That's a lot of work that she gleaned the the grain from that. She was not afraid to work. We've emphasized that a great deal. It occurs in the story again, so I want to emphasize it again. Because it takes hard work to manage a household and to operate a home in a way that honors God. I want to ask you to think about a passage that speaks about laziness as opposed to having a good work ethic. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30 through 34. He said, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This kind of (laughs) hurts. Because this is the Lord saying, when I look at your stuff and I see you don't take care of it, I see laziness. They say fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and that's where I'm going to go. I want to talk about girls keeping a neat house. Okay? I want to talk to you guys about keeping the place clean, whatever part of it's your responsibility. That stuff gets away from you. You get a lot of kids there's a lot for her to do in getting the groceries and keeping that, the meals planned out and all those things and taking care of the kids and companies coming and going. And, and uh, you know, she might have some secular work on the side that she does, and that just complicates her task and makes it that much more difficult. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of sisters that, that see the weight of that task, and, and they begin to buckle a little bit. It's hard to keep up with all of that. How do you overcome that? Some say it can't be overcome. i watched my wife overcome it for 35 years. I, sometimes I, I look at it and think, how is she doing this? I don't mean having your house ready to take pictures and put it on the cover of a magazine. I'm talking about getting it where it's not filthy. Maybe it's lived in, but it's live-inable, if I could invent that phrase. And I kept watching until I figured out how she did it. She stayed up late and she got up early. She kept working after I was tuckered out and ready to quit. The other day we moved. We moved in on a Friday. Saturday night she had that house ready for company for supper, and again Sunday night. And I said, "This is coming Monday for supper." And she was hustling and hassling and cleaning and mopping and wiping walls and going nuts. And I said, dear, it's good enough. It's neat enough. These people know we just moved. You don't have to turn this place into a showpiece. You know what she said to me? The same thing she said the other 10,000 times. I said, it's okay. She said, this is a reflection of me as a woman. I'm not going to let it stand. Okay. Thank you. Where are the nine? (laughs) Say thank you. The other day, there's an area in the front of this place that we're living at now. There's a shrub, and it's a kind that needs to be trimmed, and so I bought a hedge trimmer, and underneath there was some trash had built up, Our renters that had rented it for a while. They were not clean people, and you know, a lot of things had gathered up. And I'd gone, I bought a hedge trimmer. I trimmed my first hedge, you know, to make that neat. And then I kind of cleaned some of the trash out. It was going in stages, because there were other things I was cleaning up outside. The other day, she walked down the sidewalk coming, actually coming the other way, coming back in. She walked past that, looked down and said, so is it on your schedule somewhere to get all those leaves down there? She didn't demand, she She just kind of asked, you gonna, you know, Guess what I had done before that day was over? I, had, I filled two trash bags full of leaves that I dragged up out from under that thing. You know why I did that? Because she's industrious. You think about that for a minute. Now, I want to tell you about developing this kind of work ethic. I work with a lot of young people. We've had a lot of young people come and stay with us for varied lengths of time and most of them experience what I experienced growing up. You don't automatically love working. Most people just don't automatically love working. I have worked with very few. There's one young man from from Alabama. He's Cork's son-in-law. He probably just naturally loves work about as much as anybody ever worked. He would get mad if I didn't give him the hardest job. He just naturally loved working hard, still does as far as I know. Most people were just, I was not that way, I had to learn. But look, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. There is satisfaction in working and achieving things from your work. But understand it takes time to learn that. So you will not learn that, fellas, doing this with your video games. You will not learn that, girls, buffing your nails. Play your games and buff your nails, but make sure you get your work done. And the more you practice that habit and experience the joy of achievement that God has wired us to want, the more you learn something that a lot of the people in this country that are very miserable will never know. And that's the joy and the honor and the sense of achievement that comes from making your own way in life. There's a lot of people that are very, very unhappy and very discontent that will never know that joy. And you don't need to be one of them. So you start early practicing the habit of work. You want to learn how to not let your yard or your place or your life look like this passage describes? Then, I promise your mothers didn't tell me to say this, start out by learning to clean your room. Clean your room and build that habit. If it's not already a mandatory part of the chores, blow your mother's mind and offer to help clean the kitchen. If it's not an ordinary part of the chores, blow your dad's mind and insist he let you help mow and rake up leaves or do whatever else needs to be done. And I'm not telling you to do that because you're gonna auto-magically love it, because you may not. You know, not everybody's like that kid that just wanted to do it. Some people are more like me, and it's a chore. But you keep doing that chore, and eventually it feels pretty good to mow, and then look and see how nice it looks. It feels pretty good, fellas, to kick all that trash back up underneath your bed and put the sheet down so it's hidden, and look and say, it actually looks neat. That's gratifying. That's gratifying experience that achievement and get used to experiencing that achievement achievement and somewhere down the road you'll stop and realize you know what maturity just happened maturity just happened think about that what did naomi advise ruth to do at this juncture Verse 22 and 23 of Ruth 2, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So Naomi is saying don't stray from Boaz. Don't put yourself in a position where you're around other men and where people will interpret that as you uh, pursuing other love interests. You show yourself as having fidelity and faithfulness. And we've talked a little bit about this, but I want to spend a little more time on it this morning. Think of that as it relates to what we've labeled as the golden rule in Matthew 7 and verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus said in a nutshell, treat others the way you want to be treated. Now I want to go back to what I said in the introduction yesterday. I know different families have different rules about dating or courtship and all that sort of thing. And some people have the idea of casual dating where you're not in a committed relationship. And others think that it's wrong to do that. And I don't want to get into that discussion at all. I just want to say, assuming you've got a committed relationship, be true to that relationship. Fellas, I know the world will celebrate you being able to garner the attention of more females and spend time socializing romantically with more females. I know that. But in spite of what the world tells you, that does not make you a bigger or better man. That makes you more of a weasel. Okay? Girls, I know there is no short supply of books and movies that portray this wonderful female heroine character in the storyline who's so dreadfully conflicted as she waffles back and forth between two handsome men. And the whole point of the story revolves in part, at least, around those guys struggling for her affection, trying to get her to make up her mind. Do you want the men in your life to treat you that way? Do you want your husband or your boyfriend to treat you that way? Jesus said treat others the way you want to be treated. Someday you may have a son. This is what really lifts the fog when you start having kids. Do you want someone to treat your son or your daughter that way? Spend a little time talking to your son or your daughter trying to help them mop up their tears from one of those instances, and you'll figure out in a hurry how clear it is that you don't want to be that way because we don't like it when others treat us that way or treat other people that we love that way. So don't set that precedent for marriage by acting that way during courtship. Be what Naomi was advising Ruth to be and be loyal and faithful and true to that committed relationship. And fellas, when the other one comes along trying to bat her eyes and get your attention, don't let that distract you. It is time to show your manhood. I, I want to tell a story about a fellow that was probably in his 60s when he told me this story. He was a brother in the Lord and we happened to have a moment where Uh, he was conversing with me about a challenge he faced early in marriage. He was married to a good woman. They were both Christians. Their family was started and going, and everything was lovely. And in his youth, he had made foolish choices that built some habits that he was working hard as a young Christian man to break. And one of those habits had to do with chasing off after different girls. And he's recognizing the mistake of that. And he he told us, pretty specific story about an instance where he was out doing some work and it involved going to this person's house and he went to the front porch and here comes the lady of the house using the word lady very loosely presenting herself in a way that intended to distract him from his wife. And What what really struck me about this was he went blow by blow through the mental battle that he experienced in that that centered around thinking about his commitment to God, his commitment to his wife, his commitment to his kids, and what it would cost him if in one foolish moment he took a step this way instead of a step that way and blew it all. Just one step going that way to step inside the house as opposed to turning and stepping that way to go away from the house. Just that one choice would turn the rest of his future and that of his family. Now what choice did he make? You want me to tell you, don't you? (laughs) He made the right one. But you know, satisfying that curiosity is not what really matters. What really matters is what choice you will make. And that choice would be difficult for a lot of different people, even some people that exercise wisdom and self-control through their courtship years. But because of his mistakes that he made before becoming a Christian, he made that moment much more difficult on himself. So what really matters today is what choice will you make then and what choices are you making today to set the stage for them? Because here's what happens. You get attention from two or three people at one time of the opposite gender, that does one thing that you like. That feeds your ego. And that monster's big enough and hungry enough without you helping it. So humble yourself. Say no to the gratification of your pride and step away from that duplicity or double-mindedness or double-heartedness and be true and loyal in your relationships like Naomi was counseling Ruth. You know, that battle of loyalty represents an ongoing battle that we face in choosing to be loyal to God. And I want to issue you a call to honor in that battle in this moment. If you are mentally and spiritually and emotionally prepared to become a Christian and you've not yet made that choice, I want to encourage you to think about making the choice of loyalty to God and becoming a Christian today. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with that loyalty, I want to tell you, you're not alone in that struggle. You're not. And there are people here that love you, would love to counsel with you, would love to pray for you. And if we can assist you in that way, we'd love to do so. Or if we can assist you in becoming a Christian, please come forward and let your wishes be made known while we stand and sing the invitation song.